it's a great example of how NIH funded research and innovation and technology can improve the lives of all of us. The microneedle patch uh, is a dime-sized patch of needles that are so tiny you can barely see them with the naked eye. And within this dime there'll be a hundred or so of these tiny needles that are so small that when you place them on the skin, they don't cause any pain even after they penetrate the skin. And they are biodegradable because they can dissolve in water. Because they are needles, you can use them for an injection of a vaccine or even drugs uh, such as insulin. So here is the beauty of this uh, innovation and the thing that's really appealing about it. Actually, there's several things. But one of them is that the microneedle patch has embedded in it a vaccine that is dried. It's not in a liquid form, as is typically the case when you get an injection in your arm uh, from the physician or your nurse. But in this dried state, it's within the microneedle or on the surface of the needle. And once the needles are applied, the vaccine is delivered. Because it's dried, it doesn't require refrigeration. The fact that it doesn't require refrigeration opens up fantastic possibilities for how you can store it and distribute it. It could be placed on the shelf in a drugstore, for example. You could go in and just pick up your vaccine, take it home, and apply it yourself. Or imagine that you go to your mailbox and get an envelope, and in that has your vaccine for the year. You go in the house, put it on your arm, just like you would a Band-Aid, press it a little bit, five minutes later, it's totally dissolved. You peel this off. There is no hazardous material to dispose of because the needles are uh, biodegradable and melt literally in the skin, and you're vaccinated. That's a wonderful advance. It improves the accessibility because you can distribute it easily. It doesn't require a, a professional because you can do it yourself. So it's a fantastic innovation. It's a pleasure to be here in Edinburgh, Scotland birthplace of the needle and syringe. Less than a mile from here in this direction, in 1853, a Scotsman filed his very first patent on the needle and syringe. His name was Alexander Wood, and it was at the Royal College of Physicians. This is the patent. What blows my mind when I look at it even today is that it looks almost identical to the needle in use today, yet it's 160 years old. So we turn to the field of vaccines. Most vaccines are delivered with the needle and syringe. This 160-year-old technology. And credit where it's due on many levels, vaccines are a successful technology. After clean water and sanitation, vaccines are the one technology that has increased our lifespan the most. That's a pretty hard act to beat. But just like any other technology, vaccines have their shortcomings, and the needle, the needle and syringe, is a key part within that narrative, this old technology. 
So let's start with the obvious. Many of us don't like the needle and syringe. I share that view. However, 20% of the population have a thing called needle phobia. That's more than disliking the needle. That is actively avoiding being vaccinated because of needle phobia. And that's problematic in terms of the rollout of vaccines. Now, related to this is another key issue, which is needle stick injuries. And the WHO has figures that suggest about 1.3 million deaths per year take place due to cross-contamination with needle stick injuries. These are early deaths that take place. Now, these are two things that you probably may have heard of, but there's two other shortcomings of the needle and syringe you may not have heard about. One is it could be holding back the next generation of vaccines in terms of their immune responses. And the second is it could be responsible for the problem of the cold chain that I'll tell you about uh, as well. I'm going to tell you about some work that my team and I are doing in Australia at the University of Queensland on a technology designed to tackle those four problems. And that technology is called the nanopatch. Now, this is a specimen of the nanopatch. To the naked eye, it just looks like a square, smaller than a postage stamp. But under a microscope, what you'd see is thousands of tiny projections that are invisible uh, to the human eye. And there's about 4,000 projections on this particular square compared to, to the needle. And I've designed those projections uh, to serve a key role, which is to work with the skin's immune system. And um, so that's a very important function uh, tied in with the nanopatch. Now, we make the nanopatch with a technique called deep reactive iron etching. And this particular technique is one that's been borrowed from the semiconductor industry and therefore uh, is low cost and can be rolled out in large numbers. Now, we dry coat vaccines to the projections uh, of, of the nanopatch and apply it to the skin. Now, the simplest form of application is using our finger, but our finger has some limitations. So we've devised an applicator, and it's a very simple device. You could call it a, a sophisticated finger. It's a spring-operated device. What we do is when we apply the nanopatch to the skin, as so, immediately a few things happen. So firstly, the projections on the nanopatch breach through the tough outer layer, and the vaccine is very quickly released, within less than a minute, in fact. Then we can take the nanopatch off and discard it. And indeed, we can make a reuse of the applicator itself. So that gives you an idea of uh, the nanopatch, and immediately you can see some key advantages. We've talked about it being needle-free. These are projections that you can't even see. And of course, we get around uh, the needle phobia uh, issue as well. Now, if we take a step back and think about these other two really important advantages, one is improved immune responses through delivery, and the second is getting rid of uh, the cold chain. So let's start with the first one, this immunogenicity idea. It takes a little while to get our, our head around, but I'll try to ex explain it in, in simple, simple terms. So I'll take a step back and explain to you how vaccines work in a simple way. So vaccines work by introducing to our body a thing called an antigen, which is a, a safe form of a germ, okay? Now that safe germ, that antigen, tricks our body into mounting an immune response learning and remembering how to deal with intruders. When the real intruder comes along, 
the body quickly mounts an immune response to deal with that vaccine and neutralizes the infection. So it does that well. Now, the way it's done today with the needle and syringe is most vaccines are delivered that way with this old technology in the needle. But it could be argued that the needle is holding back our immune responses. It's missing our immune sweet spot in the skin. To describe this idea, we need to take a journey through the skin, starting with one of those projections, okay, and applying the nanopatch to the skin, and we see this kind of data. Now, this is real data. That thing that we can see there is one projection from the nanopatch that's been applied to the skin, and those colors are different layers. Now, to give you an idea of scale, if the needle was shown here, it would be too big. It would be 10 times bigger than the size of that screen, going 10 times deeper as well. It's off the grid entirely. You can see immediately that we have those projections in the skin. That red layer is a tough outer layer of dead skin, but the brown layer and the magenta layer are jammed full of immune cells. As one example, in the brown layer, there's a certain type of cell called a Langerhans cell. Every square millimeter of our body is jammed full of those Langerhans cells, those immune cells. And there's others shown as well that we haven't stained in this image. But you can immediately see that the nanopatch achieves that penetration. Indeed, we target thousands upon thousands of these particular cells just re residing within a hair's width of the surface of the skin. Now, as the, the guy that's invented this thing and designed it to do that, I found that exciting. But so what? Uh, so what if you've targeted cells? In the world of vaccines, what does that mean? Now, the world of vaccines is getting better. It's getting more systematic. However, you still don't really know if a vaccine's going to work until you roll your sleeves up and vaccinate and wait. It's a gambler's game even today. So, we had to do that gamble. We obtained an influenza vaccine, we applied it to our nanopatches, and we applied the nanopatches to the skin, and we waited. And this is in the live animal. And we waited a month, and this is what we found out. This is a data slide showing the immune responses that we've generated with the nanopatch compared to uh, the needle and syringe into the muscle. So on the horizontal axis, we have the dose shown in nanograms. On the vertical axis, we have the immune response generated, and that dashed line, that, that dashed line indicates the protection threshold. If we're above that line, it's considered protective. If we're below that line, it's not. So the red line is mostly below that curve, and indeed there's only one point that's achieved with the needle that's protective, and that's with a high dose of 6,000 nanograms. But notice immediately the distinctly different curve that we achieve with the blue line. That's what's achieved with the nanopatch, the delivered dose of the nanopatch. It's a completely different immunogenicity curve. That's a real fresh opportunity. Suddenly we have a brand new lever in the world of vaccines. We can push it one way where we could take a vaccine that works but it's too expensive and get protection with a hundredth of the dose compared to the needle. That could take a vaccine that's suddenly $10 down to 10 cents, and that's particularly important within the developing world. But there's another angle to this as well. You can take vaccines that currently don't work and get them over that line and get them protective. And certainly in the world of vaccines, that can be important. Let's consider the big three. HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, they're responsible for about 7 million deaths per year, and there's no adequate vaccination method for any of those. So potentially, with this new lever that we have with the nanopatch, we can help make that happen. We can push that lever to help get those candidate vaccines over the line. Now, of course, we've worked within my lab with many other vaccines that have obtained similar responses and similar curves 
uh, to this, what we've achieved with influenza. I'd like to now switch to talk about another key shortcoming of today's vaccines, and that is the need to maintain the cold chain. As the name suggests, the cold chain, it's the requirement of keeping a vaccine right from production all the way through to when the vaccine is applied to keep it refrigerated. Now, that presents some logistical challenges, uh, but we have ways to do it. Now, this is a slightly extreme case in point, but it helps illustrate the logistical challenges, particularly in resource poor settings, of what's required to get vaccines refrigerated and maintain the cold chain. If the vaccine is too, too warm, the vaccine breaks down, but interestingly, it can be too cold and the vaccine could break down as well. Now, the stakes are very high. The WHO estimates that within Africa, up to half the vaccines used there are considered to not be working properly because at some point the cold chain has fallen over. So it's a big problem. And it's tied in with the needle and syringe because it's a liquid form vaccine. And when it's liquid, it needs a refrigeration. A key attribute of our nano patch is that the vaccine is dry. And when it's dry, it doesn't need refrigeration. And within my lab, we've shown that we can keep the vaccine stored at 23 degrees Celsius for more than a year without any loss in activity at all. That's an important improvement. We're delighted about it as well. And the thing about it is that we have well and truly proven the nanopatch within the laboratory setting. And as a scientist, I love that, and I love science. However, as an engineer, as a biomedical engineer, and also as a human being, I'm not going to be satisfied until we've rolled this thing out, taken it out of the lab, and got it to people in large numbers, and particularly the people that need it the most. So we've commenced this particular journey, and we've commenced this journey in an unusual way. We've started with Papua New Guinea. Now, Papua New Guinea is an example of a developing world country, and it's about the same size as France, but it suffers from many of the key barriers existing with, within the world of today's vaccines. There's logistics. Within this country, there's only 800 refrigerators to keep vaccines chilled. Many of them are old, like this one in Port Moresby. Many of them are breaking down, and many are not in the highlands where, where they're required. That's a challenge. But also, Papua New Guinea has the world's highest incidence of HPV, human papillomavirus, the cervical cancer vaccine. Yet, that vaccine is not available in large numbers because it's too expensive. So for those two reasons, with the attributes of the nanopatch, we've got into the field and worked with the nanopatch and taken it to Papua New Guinea, and we'll be following that up shortly. Now, doing this kind of work is not easy. It's challenging, but there's nothing else in the world I'd rather be doing. And as we look ahead, I'd like to share with you a thought. It's the thought of a future where the 17 million deaths per year that we currently have due to infectious disease is a historical footnote. And it's a historical footnote that's been achieved by improved, radically improved vaccines. Now, standing here today in front of you, at the birthplace of the needle and syringe, a device that's 160 years old, I'm presenting to you an alternative approach that could really help make that happen, and it's a nanopatch with its attributes of being needle-free, 
pain-free, the ability for removing the cold chain and improving immunogenicity. Thank you. who hate shots and actually there's only one type because everybody hates needles right well now injections in your arm are finding strength in numbers you might soon avoid the flu because of hundreds of needles in you here's adam yamaguchi to explain getting vaccines and other important inoculations are all part of protecting your body from disease and building immunity against harmful viruses Luckily, a team at the Georgia Institute of Technology is striving to find a less painful way to deliver these life-saving medicines. We're motivated to do that in part because vaccines are often given to kids who don't like the, the needle stick so much. We're also motivated because people in this country as well as around the world don't always have sufficient access to healthcare personnel administering vaccines, and so this is a very simple way to administer them. He's talking about this, a small patch with not just one needle, but a hundred of them, each one dissolving into your skin after applying the patch with little to no discomfort. I headed south to Atlanta, Georgia to meet Mark Krausnitz, a regents professor of biomolecular engineering at Georgia Tech, to learn more about the development of these microneedle patches. Welcome to Georgia Tech, Adam. Let's look at some microneedles. Great. So in fact, here I've got some pulled up on the screen. Several times magnified, I would imagine. Uh, just a few times magnified, and, and in fact, if we uh, see the, the real thing, oh, wow. it just looks like that. So that little square in there is where all of those microneedles are. How many needles are in, are in this little patch here? Uh, there are 100 needles, 10 by 10. Wow. The microneedles are as tall as just a few hairs are thick. How exactly does this work? You take this patch, you would apply it to the wrist. So I press it here to the wrist, you, you push down firmly, then you leave it in place for a few minutes. When you're done, you can peel it off and throw it away. So inside each of these needles is the medication? That's right. Here are some microneedles before use. We then press them into the skin for five minutes, pull them out, huh. and they're gone. They disappear. A nice feature here is that there, there are no needles there when you're all finished, and that's an important safety advantage. The main purpose of this is to administer drugs. What is the alternative to this? Well, the alternative typically is the hypodermic needle. So, you know, something like that. But that, of course, so hurts a bit scary. And it's also something you can't usually administer to yourself. So that's another important feature is that you can put a patch on all by yourself. People don't describe it as painful. Some people describe it like if you took some Velcro and pressed that against your skin, there's kind of a roughness that you can feel. So that, that's the kind of sensation. Before you landed on this, what were some of the uh, prototypes like? When we first started out, we used silicon wafers, just like are used in the microelectronics industry. But silicon's really not the best medical material, so we moved to stainless steel. What hypodermic needles are made out of? And we then made a patch that looks something like this, and you can see now a close-up of the microneedles, which are made out of water-soluble materials, like sugar is one of our, our favorite materials to use. One of Mark's last big hurdles is figuring out how to mass-produce millions of medically safe microneedles. The flu vaccine patch, we hope, will be available within the next five years. And the sooner the better for all of us.
has proven that it's nearly impossible to go through life without a scrape or a cut. I believe the medical terms are owie and boo-boo. Now technology is stepping in to speed the heel. Luckily, there are researchers that have a fixation on the duration of your laceration. Here's Adam Yamaguchi to explain. Recovery from a serious injury can be an agonizing process. The pain of a wound or a broken bone is one thing, but changing dressings, applying medications, sometimes on an hourly basis, only adds to the discomfort. Well, imagine a new radical idea for a bandage, one that feels like your own skin, monitors your wound's condition, and is a conduit for healing medications. A group of graduate engineering students at MIT, led by Professor Xuanhe Zhao, came up with the idea while experimenting with substances called hydrogels. Hydrogel is a kind of material that has a lot of water, and it's solid. The most common example is contact lenses. They're soft, they can be put in the eye. Most hydrogels are weak. They will break really easily. So the first challenge was to develop a material that is still biocompatible, human-friendly, and can be stretched. I traveled to MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts to meet with Herman Parada, one of the grad students striving to heal your body faster with the first ever hydrogel bandage. So what does the hydrogel bandage actually look like? It's two parts, right? So this is the first one, which is the actual hydrogel. And here's how it looks like. It's like jellyfish. Yeah, it is very soft, has a lot of water. It's oh, cold. It's very cold. So this is mostly water. Correct. Right now it's probably 90% water by weight. Mm. And now... What's the innovation here? Most of the hydrogels, jello, contact lenses, they're brittle. You cannot stretch them, they will break. So see how you can play with it? You can put it around, they will wrap around. So you developed this hydrogel, found that you could make it very, very pliable, and then you decided, okay, let's try to figure out what we can do with this. Correct. Yes, okay. yes, yes. The second component is where we put the sensors and the channels to deliver drugs. The MIT team made molds that form a pliable, silicone-based component. A second layer for channels to carry liquids or hold sensors and electronics that are combined with a hydrogel section to form a complete hydrogel bandage. So this is the finished bandage product. So you see it has two layers, uh -huh. a hydrogel and a silicone, if you look from the side. Oh, okay. And you can see also the channels. Those channels, okay. Yes. How we envision it using it is when you have a wound, yeah. it gets placed here, and then the liver drops as you need. Herman used a dye to demonstrate how medicine can be delivered into the bandage, where it can then be absorbed by the skin naturally with no needles or IVs. Eventually in the future, we wanted to have automated in the sense that the sensors will exactly deliver and tell when to deliver drug, when to like, stop delivering drug. And I, I gotta say, it, it just feels very natural. You do forget that it's there. And that's what we want to do, and that's why we're using soft materials and hydrogels, because it feels so much like the human skin and so much like our muscles. Once sensors are added, they can monitor things like body temperature, pulse rates, and blood sugar levels. Herman and his colleagues have proven the concept works. So what's the next step? The next step is to talk to doctors and people in the medical field to really understand what are the requisites that they have and for them to help us develop and improve our designs to match certain specific conditions. With the promise of hydrogel bandages in our future, look for more weekend warriors to get out there and do what they do best, or worst. There's nothing like a breeze, a gentle... The needle tip 
dissolve in the epidermis and release their active ingredient. The active ingredient is then absorbed by the body and transported directly to its site of action. The first pass effect is avoided. Microarray patches are suitable for biologicals, vaccines and small molecules and reduce the risk of needle injuries and infections. LTS delivers innovations and value relevant for patients. Presentation. My name is Wesley Walker and this is my partner Millie Wang and we will be presenting on behalf of Group 14. And today we'll be telling you about our fillable microneedle patches. Uh, as a quick little overview of the presentation, we'll first be going over the motivation behind our project, the problem we're trying to solve, uh, what our design is, how we tested it, what our prototype is, and the main challenges and takeaways from our project, as well as the next steps. So the global drug and gene delivery market is quite large, being valued at roughly $379 billion in 2015. Um, when you think about pharmaceuticals, people tend to first imagine uh, injectables, simply because injection is a very useful drug administration modality as it allows for really rapid and efficient drug action with nearly 100% bioavailability in almost instantaneously. However, it's very invasive and typically requires the use of or the help of a trained medical practitioner, such as a nurse for administration. On the other hand, transdermal drug delivery is incredibly user-friendly and effectively painless. However, it suffers from long onset times and a really narrow scope as only certain small molecules uh, with certain uh, partition coefficients are actually able to diffuse through the skin. So you can't use it for all drugs. And what we want to do is develop an intermediate drug delivery device that combines the benefits of both platforms while minimizing the weaknesses. And a very good way to do this is with the help of microneedles. These tiny little needles are on the order of microns and what they do is they puncture the stratum corneum which is the layer of skin that provides the largest barrier to diffusion. And in doing so, you can create these pathways that allow drug molecules to diffuse through the skin much more quickly than they otherwise would in intact uh, skin. These microneedles can be solid, hollow, coated, or dissolving, but in all cases, the end result is to achieve faster and more efficient drug delivery. So uh, given that we want to effectively have an all-in-one solution that combines the use case of the hypodermic needle and the transdermal patch, all of our design requirements come from these platforms. So, for example, we need to achieve quick and efficient drug delivery, much like an injectable pharmaceutical. We'd also need to achieve mechanical stability so that microneedles are not being embedded in the patient's skin and causing an inflammatory reaction. We'd like to minimize pain. Um, we also would like to achieve variable dose capacity to allow for personalized medication. We need the designed to be durable and leak-proof, as we'll be working with liquid drug solutions. It needs to adhere to the skin, much like a regular transdermal patch, and it needs to be very easy to use. And this brings us to our proposed design, which is that of a fillable microneedle patch. This microneedle patch incorporates these two-dimensional punch-out stainless steel microneedle arrays, which were generously provided to us by our uh, industry partner, Exvivo. And these microneedles will be the ones that are puncturing the stratum corneum and allowing for faster drug diffusion. This array is uh, incorporated with an elastomer backing layer, which will expand 
to accept variable drugs uh, volumes, and then drug uh, delivery to the patch is accomplished using a tubing and septum. So on the market, this patch would come unfilled, off, you would be able to buy it off the shelf, and it would be up to the patient to load it with their prescribed dose. So this is really useful for anybody that um, needs a certain dosage. And this is in contrast to typical transdermal patches, such as nicotine patches, with, which come with a prescribed dose of, for example, 10 milligrams, um, whereas you would be able to adjust this based on your prescription. So um, given that we had these microneedle arrays from Ex Vivo, um, we had two particular types. Uh, these are some SEM pictures of what they look like close up. So on the left, you have um, what we call our no window array, which you have a solid uh, microneedle. In the windowed array, there are cutouts um, through the middle of the needle, and these are originally designed um, based on the fact that they would perhaps help diffusion because there's like a small reservoir area. Um, so one of our most important uh, things first to test was mechanical durability. Um, we don't want these needles to break off into the skin and remain embedded as a health hazard. Um, so we used our test membrane and we embedded these microneedle arrays in the test membrane, conducted our usual testing that I'll discuss in a bit, and then removed these microneedles and inspected them. Uh, so we wanted to see maybe how many had been flattened, if any had been broken off. Um, for the no window array, we found that 45% of the needles have been flattened, and for the window array, 52%. Um, we do want to note that because, although they were flattened, this doesn't mean that they did, weren't able to puncture the test membrane su successfully. There were still holes consistently made in the test membrane. Um, these, the flattening, uh, we attribute maybe due to um, the structure, how we remove them, um, but it was consistently puncturing the test membrane itself. So from this, we determined that um, although they were pretty similar, perhaps the no window array was slightly more stable. Um, so this kind of led us to do our diffusion testing on the arrays themselves. So our most important component of our project was to quantify the amount of diffused drug through the microneedle array um, through the test membrane. And we did this um, by, by first building these small scale diffusion testing cells so they were made out of centrifuge tubes and syringes. This acted as um, the reservoir from which we could uh, load more clear water, uh, collect samples throughout time intervals. We, we, we decided to use STRAT-M as our um, test membrane, which is a um, well-known synthetic skin analog. Uh, the structure of STRAT-M itself has two layers. The top layer, which would um, kind of simulate the top layer of your skin, is very hydrophobic, it's very slippery. If we were to put water on it, it would kind of just slide off. Uh, the bottom layer of Stratum um, is a lot more porous and passive to diffusion. We also decided to use methylene blue as our test molecule, as um, methylene blue, well, from what we've tested, doesn't diffuse through the test membrane without the help of a microneedle array. We've left it for hours on end and no diffusion was observed. It's also dyed so that we're able to quantify our, our results afterwards using UV-Viz. In testing these microneedle arrays, uh, we collected samples over a period of one hour throughout. Uh, this is mainly due to the fact that we don't want our product to be something like a transdermal patch where you have to leave on for five hours, six hours. We want that onset to be within the hour time period. So from our testing, we found that uh, between the two microneedle arrays, 
their membrane permeability was pretty similar. Um, the concentration of the drug or the test molecule that makes it through that microneedle array into the main chamber of the diffusion cell is increasing over a period of time. Uh, the, no, the window array, which has that cutout in the needle, uh, was found to be slightly better, but at the same time, we had a lot of issues with variability of data in that case. Um, sometimes we got a lot of diffusion at once, sometimes we got very little than expected. Um, so due to these initial diffusion testing plus our mechanical testing, we concluded that the arrays with no windows, which is the entirely solid microneedle, um, would probably be our best bet in order to get a mechanically stable patch um, that doesn't have any breakage as well as um, less, variabil less variability so that we can achieve higher consistency in our results. So using this uh, array with uh, no window, we built our first or series of prototypes. Um, so this on the left is the top view. Um, this is built pretty similarly to what Wes showed you before with our um, design prototype, which is um, an elastic nitrile batching layer attached to our microneedle array. And on the side is um, tubing and a septum for, um, so that we can load the patch with our syringe. Okay, so in building and designing and testing our prototype, we came across a few key design challenges. First of which is uh, we had a, due to the large size of the tubing used, as you can see here, we have a lot of wrinkling in the elastomer backing as well as some tenting occurring near the septum. Uh, this is not ideal as when you load the drug, this creates essentially dead volume that the solution is able to hide away in as opposed to being forced into the array and onto the surface of the skin. So it's really important to minimize this dead volume in order to get uh, accurate amounts of drug to the patient and not have them systematically underdose. So the s solution to this is really simple. It simply involves using smaller components for the tubing and the septum, as doing so will reduce the effect of this tenting. Also, we were able to improve it as we made more and more patches simply by uh, making the elastomer membrane kind of conform to the tubing as opposed to simply stretching it over top of everything. And that helped with the reducing the dead volume. The next problem we ran into was poor adhesion between the uh, microneedle patch, the actual stainless steel array, and our test membrane. So while the patch itself was perfectly sealed and did not leak, we, it was, we had a lot of problems with leaking at that array test membrane interface because, as you can see in our photo here, actually the vast majority of the bottom of our patch is open. So if there's any leak or any poor adhesion in any of the corners, our liquid solution will just run off uh, the surface of the test membrane or the patient's skin. So the solution to this is to use a waterproof medical-grade adhesive, which we didn't have for our testing, but a good example would be, for example, an acrylate polymer um, or any pressure-sensitive adhesive. In the meantime, what we did is we obtained a new diffusion cell which used clamping to hold the or to hold the stainless steel array to the membrane, which effectively eliminated all the leaking problems and allowed us to continue with our validation test, as we didn't want to have to wait for this new uh, adhesive. However, even though we were able to effectively eliminate leakage entirely, the diffusion in our entire patch was significantly lower than expected 
Given that the patch is 16 times larger in area than our small-scale diffusion, we expected diffusion to be very rapid with this patch, but we found that this actually was not the case with most of it simply not diffusing at all. And this caused us to question the validity of our initial diffusion cell. And through a little bit of testing and troubleshooting, what we found and our current uh, working theory is that the old diffusion cell, the way it, was, it worked is we had to apply the membrane over the lit top and then screw on a lid to clamp it. And in doing so, we believe that the membrane was being stretched out. So when you puncture the membrane with the needles, the membrane is somewhat elastic and will conform to the needles. But once you start to stretch the membrane, these holes are being essentially pulled open, significantly increasing the pore size and allowing for drug to diffuse through the membrane at a much more rapid rate than what it should be. So essentially, our previous diffusion data has a systematic error that caused the diffusion to be overestimated in all cases. Um, the solution to this is actually interesting. And well, essentially, this problem signifies that passive diffusion is not sufficient as opposed to our initial results because it simply will not go through the holes. But what you can do is if you apply or build up pressure at the membrane interface, these holes can be effectively forced open and allow the test molecule or drug to force itself through the holes of the uh, membrane. And this pressure can be generated passively simply by loading the patch, which causes the elastomer to stretch and it will attempt to restore its initial shape, which will apply a force to the liquid and force it through the patch. Alternatively, the pressure can be applied actively by the end user by simply uh, pushing on the patch like this and forcing all of the drug molecule into the patient. This is demonstrated here with our pressure-driven flow experiment. Um, what you're seeing is the underside of our diffusion cell, and we injected methylene blue into the patch at uh, time equals zero. There's a little bit of methylene blue that made it through within the first 40 seconds due to accidental uh, pressure application of the uh, test patch. However, we started to apply pressure after 40 seconds, and you can start to see these blue dots form the second that we start to apply pressure. And over the next second, as we apply more and more pressure, you can see that the methylene blue starts to diffuse through the membrane significantly faster than it did um, without any pressure, as you can see, within the, we continue to apply pressure for 30 seconds, and you can see that those final 30 seconds of applied pressure resulted in significantly more methylene blue getting through the membrane than in the first 40 seconds where it was simply passive diffusion. So from the series of testing we did, we learned some key lessons and key takeaways. Um, first, mainly that these stainless steel microneedles are able to puncture the skin without significant mechanical failure in the form of breakage um, embedded in the skin after removal. And puncturing the skin membrane with these microneedles do significantly increase drug diffusion as opposed to just having the test molecule on top of um, our skin membrane and, see, and in that case where no diffusion occurs. Um, one thing we didn't foresee was that the selecting the appropriate adhesive would be so important to the proper function of our patch. And um, ultimately, that passive diffusion is not an adequate system to drive that dosage in the patch through our test membrane. And that pressure-driven flow is necessary if we really want to achieve those rapid onset times.
from this, our next steps would be to screen adhesives for compatibility, um, mostly that you know, they're waterproof and they can deal with the pressurized system that we're introducing, as well as incorporation of pressure-driven flow into the system. Um, from our testing, you can see that we can simply do that by just having the end user apply force to the patch after application. Um, to wrap up, uh, we have some acknowledgments. We really want to thank XPVO Labs for their guidance, uh, for the provision of the microneedle arrays, our consultant, Dr. Botsui, as well as Dr. Chris Backhouse, Jen Coggin, and Neil McManus for their help and mentorship throughout this process. And we'll take any questions now. about putting a little chip in with the vaccine so when the, the cameras the 5g comes out what they're, they're gonna they're gonna scan everybody we got to get scanned all of you are practicing the devil's law what happened to bill gates why is he not in jail it's a big thing that's <laughs> going on tiktok right now what, can you just put that to rest and say how ridiculous it is that, that um, we are not being ridiculous. injected with chips is what i want we are not being injected with chips doctors scientists and the makers of microchips all agree there's no chip in the COVID-19 vaccine. That's just not possible as far as the size that would be required for that microchip. Second, that microchip would have to have an associated power source. And then in addition, that power source would have to transmit a signal through at least an inch of muscle and fat and skin to a remote device, which again, just doesn't make sense. Videos making fun of the theory and some supporting it have gotten millions of views. But the vaccine does not inject a microchip that can track you, make you magnetic, or connect you to a 5G network. There's lots of stuff that the government can use to track us through our phones, through our credit cards. The vaccine is the least of your worries. Still, when 1,500 American adults were asked in July whether the U.S. government is using the COVID-19 vaccine to microchip the population, 5% said it was definitely true, while another 15% said it was probably true. Only 46% said it was definitely false. Often our belief in some of these misinformation and some of these conspiracy theories comes from a desire to make the world a better place or protect the ones that we love. This pandemic should have been one of those things that brought us together, just like 9-11 brought us together. But right now we're very much still divided, and quite honestly, our counts in my hospital right now are higher than they've ever been throughout the entire pandemic. We talked to doctors, vaccine researchers, and one man who does have microchips under his skin about where this conspiracy theory came from and why it's not possible. The first requirement for a conspiracy theory to take hold is that it's rooted in something plausible. In this case, one of the places it started is this 22-page paper on quantum mechanics. Kevin McHugh wrote it when he was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. It's interesting to see how someone takes like a little bit of truth and then spins it into some totally different story that's just you know, not based in fact anymore. The research, conducted only on rats so far, explored how minuscule light-emitting particles called quantum dots could be delivered to the skin to record vaccine history. 
specifically in lower-income nations that don't have electronic medical records. It's not a microchip, it's a nanoparticle. We're coupled to the actual vaccine itself, so no one can possibly kind of make a mistake that would cause a child to be unprotected. It does play on very real insecurities about living in the modern world, about having your data collected, things that we know to be true. And conspiracy theories work well because they lean on those kernels of truth. Next ingredient for a conspiracy that sticks is funding from someone rich and famous. Bill Gates has kind of often been included in conspiratorial rhetoric because he represents this global elite. And most conspiracies are about sort of tackling, you know, a global cabal. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation helped found Global Vaccine Alliance, Gavi, two decades ago. That's why our foundation has committed over $250 million to support COVID-19 vaccine research. The Gates Foundation also funded that MIT study on quantum dots. The connection was enough to put Bill Gates at the center of the conspiracy. A day before last year's vaccine summit, Gates addressed the conspiracy theory in a call with reporters. The information thing is just so weird. There's no chips or anything like that, you know, that have any connection to this thing. I mean, it's almost hard to deny this stuff because it's so stupid or strange. Over the past year, Bill Gates was mentioned in reference to vaccine microchips or barcodes nearly 159,000 times across traditional, social, broadcast, and online media. As the co-founder of Microsoft, he's also targeted by the anti-tech movement and all the fear around 5G. This ties in the last ingredient for a successful conspiracy theory, a buzzword to make it go viral. It's not like we see these misinformation narratives singularly. They work because they build off of one another. The final twisted result is a false conspiracy that goes something like this. The global distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine is in fact a ploy by Bill Gates and other elites to inject each person with a tracking microchip that would be activated by 5G wireless technology. So let's break it down. Is there in fact a chip small enough to fit in a vaccine syringe? The COVID vaccines are administered with 25 to 22 gauge needles, far smaller than the 16 gauge needles used for drawing blood. The vaccine needles have internal diameters between about 0.26 and 0.41 millimeters. Now let's talk about the size of chips. A chip with 5G functionality is a little smaller than a penny. The smallest radio frequency identification, or RFID chip, is indeed small enough at 0.125 millimeters, but they only function when attached to a coil antenna that makes the single chip system about the size of a grain of rice, which would require a syringe about 13 times larger than the one used to inject the vaccine. At the very edge of scientific advancement, researchers are working on potentially injectable temperature sensors, like this one at Columbia University, shown inside an 18-gauge needle, which has an inner diameter more than three times larger than that used for a COVID vaccine. The individual subcomponents in very, very small chips are small enough, but they need to be attached to everything else that makes them work, that makes them into a device and not just a random floating RFID tag. We also ask companies that manufacture chips whether the technology exists. I think the answer to that question is probably not. Uh, we are able to do a lot of things that actually a vaccine that uh, would, would have a, a microchip in it, uh, not yet. At this point in time, I wouldn't be too worried about getting injected with, um, with basically devices and pads. It doesn't exist. Johan Osterlund has developed a chip that can be implanted in the skin. He has four. Isn't that two by 12 millimeters? That's 
the size of a luxurious grain of rice, and it contains an antenna, a ferretic rod to attract more EM, and a tiny microchip that contains that uh, tiny, tiny memory. Osterlund's injected the RFID chips in about 6,000 people so far, mostly in Sweden, charging up to 150 euros per device. He uses a needle more than 10 times bigger than the one used for vaccines. I do single sign-on on my laptop, I don't know, 50 times a day, unlocking your phone, getting into my house. It's, it's strictly convenient. RFID chips have been commercially available since the 70s. They store a tiny amount of data, which can be read from a few inches away by other devices enabled with near-field communication, or NFC technology. Now that NFC has taken off, RFID chips allow things like paying without swiping your card, keyless access to your building, and quick entry to public transit. Getting rid of your wallet and keychain and allowing that microchip to represent whatever cards and keys you have cluttering your, your pockets. But the value of the biohacks chips is that each one is unique. The way COVID vaccines are administered makes it impossible to ensure even a non-specific chip would end up in each arm. While the biohacks chips are injected using a large syringe pre-filled with a unique RFID device, the COVID vaccine is drawn up from a vial that contains between 5 and 15 doses. Dr. Matt Lawrence is a co-investigator on the phase 3 trials of the Moderna and Novavax COVID vaccines. So that multi-dose file is intended for multiple individuals. So the thought that you could precisely pull up the exact volume that's required for a vaccine for an individual and randomly hope that you would get a very small microchip for each and every single person who's intended to be dosed with that vial uh, is just simply not possible. world where a chip was able to be injected through a vaccine, then it would be impossible for it to transmit data back out without an antenna, which would make it even larger, especially through muscle and skin. The depth of the mRNA vaccine insertion would be approximately an inch to an inch and a half, which is fairly deep. And, and again, this is muscle tissue, which is very dense. mRNA vaccines are injected into muscle, while the Biohax chip is injected much shallower, just under the skin. That's why you can push it up this were, were, was any, any deeper, you wouldn't be able to, to communicate it with a phone or even with a door-mounted reader. And then there's the problem of power. Biohacks devices are too small to be powered. The biggest triumph for something that goes in or on a body and has a power source is a pacemaker. In general, you can think of the power source as being about the size of a coin cell. James Heathers makes wearable devices, including some for the Department of Defense, that track movement and biometrics. His devices are powered by a battery about the size of a thick postage stamp. Inside, there is a thin silicon patch, and that manages to contain the microprocessor, the inductive charging pad, the battery, and most of the other ancillary electronics with sensors that are running down the sleeve. Because he develops devices to track people and collect data, a thought popped into Heather's head during the 15-minute waiting period after he got his shot. Well, how do you know they didn't microchip you? 
and that set off a very interesting chain of internal events. I mean, which concluded, of course, that it was robustly impossible for a number of reasons. In reality, an RFID chip is a passive device used for identification purposes like inventory. They're also what's used to microchip pets. A scanner needs to be within a couple feet to read its minuscule amount of data. You can't track the live location of a lost pet even when it's microchipped for this same reason. But if it's picked up by a shelter, a vet can hold a scanner over the animal to identify it. Debunked conspiracies have long claimed that RFID chips and everything from your tires to your bra are tracking us. It's not a very good tracking device if I have to stand right next to you to retrieve information from what's actually being located. Although tracking chips aren't possible in the COVID vaccine, the misinformation campaign found traction in part because medical injustices have happened in our country's not-too-distant past, like a public health study in Tuskegee, Alabama, that falsely claimed to be treating hundreds of black men for syphilis from 1932 to 1972. And it resulted in, you know, at least um, 100 black men dying. That's what happened to black and brown communities. So it's a legitimate concern of I want to make sure, make sure, make sure that you aren't trying to hurt me because you've been proven not to be trustworthy. That's why Dr. Ebony Hilton was the first person to receive the vaccine at the University of Virginia last December. Literally knowing the medical injustice that um, the black community in particular has lived through, and I knew how important it would be for representation for persons to see, like, is this something I can actually trust? That doesn't make them conspiracy theorists. It makes them in some ways, rational actors are trying to evaluate, given what they know about the history of the U.S. and medical care. Um, they're, they're rational in, in being hesitant, in, in asking questions, in wanting to be persuaded. So how does Dr. Hilton persuade people the conspiracy is false? Because we have racial health disparities, and we know that black and brown people are dying at higher rates from COVID-19 infections, if the government did not give us access to the vaccine, that would be Tuskegee Part 2, right? a new version of it. And if you're looking at who actually were the first persons in line to get vaccinated, they were the Donald Trumps of the world. They, they were, you know, um, the Mitch McConnells. Fear of government overreach has resurfaced with President Biden's recent vaccine mandate for federal workers and contractors, although in reality, it's nothing new. George Washington required his colonial army to be vaccinated against smallpox. The best way of keeping the disease from spreading and ultimately wiping it out is to reach herd immunity. In reality, orchestrating such a complex plot would require mass cooperation from companies and government leaders. You will have bad experiences with the government. The DMV doesn't work or, you know, you can't call up the tax people if you need to get your taxes done. And yet we seem to think they also could orchestrate this incredible plan to get microchips in all of us. And then there's the immeasurable cost. Economically, this doesn't seem feasible. I mean, where the, the government's already spending an enormous amount of money in, in making the vaccine available. And governments here and governments around the world are doing so. So it seems unlikely that the additional cost of adding microchip will be affordable. At least half of Americans have been vaccinated, at least uh, as far as adults are concerned, or those who are eligible. So just thinking about the number of individuals for whom chips would have had to have been developed, manufactured, distributed, and then tracked, logistically, it's simply overwhelming. In fact, those spreading misinformation may have their own economic incentives. The sad fact is that misinformation is incredibly
incredibly profitable as well. You know, there are plenty of people who are making a lot of money off of vaccine hesitancy by redirecting people to supplements that they happen to sell or alternative practices that they've written a book about, or even just kind of people who are getting money from ad sales and engagement. Indeed, companies are making billions by tracking and selling your data. They're just not using vaccines to do it. Facebook doesn't need a microchip in order to monetize your clicking and your data that you are giving them freely. For an accurate record of your movements and purchases, look no further than your phone, credit card, and GPS navigation. You can, to like 90% accuracy, know what the next purchase is going to be and where and why you express yourself in a certain way and then go to Spotify, then go to McDonald's, all of those metrics and all of that data has been been tracked, it's been compartmentalized and siloed and been sold to the highest bidder. While some chase the false narrative of chips in COVID vaccines, experts are focused on real threats to our privacy and data security caused by society's willing participation in an ever-digital age. If the only thing you're worried about is, is tracking, then you need to go live in a Unabomber shack in the middle of Montana get rid of all your technology. But if you want to live in the modern world, you're going to have to balance the real fears that you should have that come with those conveniences. We can find out just as much from you just by having your cell phone in your pocket or just as much from you from just going to the store and buying a coffee these days. So we have lots of different technology to track people and their data. And hopefully we'll have more robust legal systems so we know those systems better. But we definitely don't need to put a microchip in people's arms. website and YouTube channel, Found My Fitness, and Dr. Roger Schwelt, who is a quadruple board-certified physician, has teaching appointments at University of California, Riverside, and Loma Linda University School of Medicine, and is the co-founder of MedCram. And on both our channels, we've been gathering the most popular questions and beliefs about COVID-19 vaccines, safety questions, efficacy questions, potential risk versus benefit questions. And I'm really looking forward to both of your responses because since the beginning of the pandemic, you've been outstanding communicators about the science and the data as it becomes available. You critically read COVID studies, you confer with expert colleagues, and then you help break down what do people really need to know. And you've also really focused on ways that people can optimize their own health and immunity throughout your discussions. I think this is going to be a lengthy discussion and, and geared towards people that want to better understand the data and some of the important nuances related to these questions. So thank you both for being here today. Dr. Schwelt, I'm going to send the first question your way. I've heard some people say that COVID vaccines aren't necessary for relatively young people who are in good shape and don't have medical problems. What are your thoughts on this? Well, Kyle, uh, as you may know, I'm a critical care intensivist and I take care of patients in the hospital. I, I work in a one ICU hospital in a one hospital town. So anything bad that happens uh, comes to me in the intensive care unit. I'm the one that 
is there when they put the endotracheal tube in. I put the, the chest tubes in, the central lines, and holding the patient's hands. And so for me, in the last couple of weeks, this has become really personal for me because what I've seen in the last couple of weeks in our hospital is like any, nothing else that I've seen, even with the prior wave going back uh, to February and January of this year. So what is it that I'm seeing? I'm seeing patients in their 30s, uh, patients even in their 20s coming in with very few comorbidities, maybe just a little bit overweight, and they are ending up on the ventilator. Uh, I I've seen fathers in their 60s coming in crying, asking me to do everything that we can for their sons who are in their 30s, newly married with small children. Uh, we didn't see that back in February. And so to get to the root of your question is, is what do people who are younger have to be concerned about? I, I think it's a very good question because all of the things that we have learned about COVID-19 in the past is now being rewritten by the Delta variant. So if you look at some of this data, this is data from Virginia, and you can see here on the left-hand side of the screen in January is a graph that we're all very familiar with. This is basically the monthly hospitalization rate by age group. And what you can see there is on the right side of that first graph is it's a very high number for the elderly, and it goes down very precipitously for the young. And that's because the young were not being hospitalized. But as we go across this screen, you can see here that when we end up in August, a very ominous sign is occurring. What we're seeing is that the younger population are being hospitalized at almost the same rate. Instead of a 20th or a 10th, it's maybe half of the rate of the elderly. And so why is that happening? Well, we know that there's a very high vaccination rate in the elderly and a relatively low vaccination rate in the young. Even look at the, you can barely see it, but the yellow boxes are describing what's happening to pediatric cases. Pediatric cases, of course, those less than 12 years of age who can't get vaccinated are skyrocketing. And so this is the concern that I have. We look at some of these other issues, for instance, this idea of the 99% survival rate um, that's something that they say, hey, 99% survival, and I really don't need to be concerned about it. So if you look at this data and we compare it to something that we know very well, like the flu virus, you'll see here that the hospitalization rate for the flu virus in young people is about 0.01%. If you look at the pre-Delta COVID-19 data, it's about 0.2%. So it's almost 20-fold higher for COVID-19 in the young than it is for the flu. Now, if you think about the 1% number, there's only the 1% that are gonna be affected. That won't affect me. What we are seeing right now in this country, especially in states like Florida and Texas and, and specifically Idaho, is an overwhelming of the critical care hospital healthcare delivery system. Think about this. The population of the United States is 331 million people. If just 1% are going to die, that's 3.3 million people. And that's just the people who are dying. Let's talk about the people who are sick and need to be hospitalized because they can't breathe because of oxygenation. We only have under a million acute care beds in the United States. And so as a result of that, you are going to quickly overwhelm the health care system. Let's take the state of Idaho. It has a 39.7% fully vaccinated rate. And what we're seeing there, as of yesterday, the governor has declared that hospitals now, because they're overwhelmed, are going to start to deliver basically rationed care. You should not expect the same standards of care that you're used to expecting in the healthcare delivery system because they're just not able to give it. Let me give you some specific examples. 
instead of having one intensive care nurse per two patients, it's now going to be one intensive care nurse per six patients with some help from non-ICU nurses. Uh, because they're overwhelmed, you cannot transfer patients to higher level of care for things that they need to get done if they have very advanced cancers, for instance, because those hospitals don't have room. If you need elective surgery, their elective surgeries are being canceled. Traumas are still happening. Babies are still being born. These are the problems that we're having in a situation where you may think that because you're healthy and strong and young, you're not going to be affected. But if you were to get into a car accident or you know somebody that wants to deliver a baby and has a complication, it's going to be difficult for those things to happen. And so this is the thing that's occurring. And going back to my experience the last couple of weeks, every single one of those patients in the hospital that were there in their 30s, their 40s, were not vaccinated. And it's based on information that's coming out that you're making decisions based on whether or not you should get the vaccine because you hear about side effects or you hear about things, for instance, about myocarditis. Well, here's an article from the New England Journal of Medicine, peer-reviewed, published September 16, 2001, looking at the Israeli data with almost a million subjects in each arm. So what we have here plotted in yellow is the risk difference per 100,000 persons infected with SARS-CoV-2, and in blue is the risk difference per 100,000 persons who received the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. First, let's take a look at SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. We see big risks here for acute kidney injury, for arrhythmia, for deep venous thrombosis, for pulmonary embolism, and for myocardial infarction. And again, notice that there is a small signal here in terms of COVID-19 for myocarditis and pericarditis. Clearly, there is a small signal there with post-vaccination myocarditis and pericarditis, but actually the data here on these from Israel is showing that it's more likely to get myocarditis and pericarditis post-SARS-CoV-2 infection. But in terms of the relative risks for the vaccine, which is in blue, notice that the biggest one here at 78 is lymphadenopathy, which is a normal response to the vaccine. Now, there's been a couple of papers that are in the peer review process, but have been published to a medical archive server. And again, the peer review process is where the paper is submitted to experts in the field that review it looking for possible bias or things that were not taken into consideration. And this preprint non-peer-reviewed article using electronic records in the United States also agreed with the Israeli data that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and came to the conclusion that young males infected with the virus are up to six times more likely to develop myocarditis as those who received the vaccine. Another preprint, which is still currently in the process of being peer-reviewed, made headlines in a number of papers in the UK and also in the United States, and it showed the opposite, that the incidence of post-vaccine myocarditis had a higher incidence than hospitalization in pediatric patients from COVID-19. However, the article gleaned most of its data from the VAERS, which, as you know, is a reporting system. And raw data based on reports that could be made by anyone and often contain incomplete descriptions and chart notes that require additional investigation, removal of confounding variables, and comparison to background levels of medical problems to become useful. 
Now, we'll talk about the BAERS here in just a bit, but as you'll see, VAERS data doesn't allow you to really conclude anything. BAERS can be used to generate hypotheses, but not to test them directly. So in summary, I think it's good for researchers to generate hypotheses from BAERS data, but it's a problem when newspapers turn hypotheses of observational data that haven't been peer-reviewed yet and turn them into headlines. So it'll be interesting to see what issues the peer review process points out in these papers and if they go on to be published. So to answer your question, Kyle, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of information there, um, but for a young person now, today, facing the Delta variant and maybe future variants, it's not the same type of virus that we were dealing with back earlier in 2021. Yes, now they are more susceptible to getting the infection, and now the risk of them being hospitalized is higher. Dr. Patrick, what are, what are your thoughts on this question? Well, I think in, in addition to hospitalization, there's also the risk of people who have mild symptoms who don't have to go to the hospital. They stay at home during the duration of their illness are coming down with post-COVID syndrome, which is popularly, popularly known as the long-haul COVID. And, um, you know, the, the, the symptoms range from brain fog to heart racing heart problems to lethargy. And there's been a variety of studies that have come out that have looked at, you know, what what long-haul COVID is and what population it seems to be affecting. And interestingly, you'd think, well, people having these long-term effects would be the ones that were, you know, on the ventilator. Well, of course, the people on ventilator do have long-term effects. But you'd think people that are hospitalized would, would be the ones mostly having these long-haul COVID effects. And it turns out younger people, people under the age of 50, teenagers even, People in their 20s are the ones that are really, you know, coming down with this long-haul COVID syndrome. There was a, there's a preprint that is, has not been peer-reviewed yet, and it's a big study that was done out of the UK, and it's, it's part of this ongoing study called the Biobank study. They get large population sample sizes. In this case, it was a little bit, it was close to 800 people. It was 780 or something like that people before the pandemic came in and had MRI brain scans. And so um, they have all this, you know, there's, researchers have all this data on individuals, you know, you know, brain structure and volume. And so once the pandemic hit, many people came down with COVID-19, some mild cases, some more severe, some were hospitalized. And a few months, you know, into the pandemic, researchers doing this biobank study thought, hey, we should bring these people back in and get a brain scan and see if there's any changes. And so that's what they did. Just, you know, months after their first scan, they brought them back in for another scan. And what this, the preliminary findings, again, that are not peer-reviewed yet, showed is that there are major differences in gray matter um, regions of the brain. Gray matter atrophy is occurring in several different regions of the brain, very prominently in the olfactory region, which makes sense because, you know, one of the one of the telltale symptoms of COVID-19, at least pre-Delta, was loss of smell, loss of taste. And also there's atrophy in other brain region, regions involved in, in memory and learning. People that had severe COVID do have worse atrophy uh, compared to the people that only had mild cases, did not need to be hospitalized. 
but they themselves were also experiencing brain atrophy. These are people that did not have to go to the hospital. Um, and, of course, people were matched for the same age, the same gender, the same ethnicity, and the same time in between scans. We're trying to keep everything, you know, as comparable as possible to compare apples to apples. And so to, to me, that was quite frightening because it really suggests that, you know, there, there are there are complications and there are, you know, long-term effects of, of this virus that we don't quite understand and that are affecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I personally know quite a few. Dr. Schwell, anything to add on the long COVID front? Because I know that's a concern. That's a concern that, that I have at, at my age. If I got COVID-19, would I have lingering symptoms? Um, what are you seeing on your end clinically? regard to that. Oh yeah, so in addition to me working in the intensive care unit, I also have an outpatient pulmonary clinic and I've I, I've diagnosed at least three or four just off the top of my head blood clots in patients who went to the hospital, had COVID-19, survived, got better, so they weren't part of the 1%, but then they had persistent shortness of breath, leg swelling, we, we immediately made the diagnosis and put them on blood thinners. And so that, that's just a, a small slice of what we're seeing uh, in terms of Comorbidity. To add on to the blood clots and strokes, there was a study, multiple studies, um, one out of Israel and a couple out of out of the United States, showing that people under the age of 50 were coming in to to the emergency room for strokes. And uh, one of the studies that out of Israel found they, they test everyone for COVID-19. You know, a great deal of the like a, a high percentage of the people that were coming in for these strokes, these young people under 50 had COVID-19 and didn't even know they had had it. So, I mean, we're talking obviously mild, mild cases, potentially even asymptomatic if they didn't even know they had COVID-19. And they're coming in with, with strokes. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is the thing is that COVID-19 has many different ways of, of affecting the body. The one that we all know about is the lungs, of course, because it can cause inflammation in the lungs. But as uh, Dr. Patrick points out, there are blood clot issues. So blood clots to the lungs can also occur, but also blood clots to the brain, uh, which uh, manifest the strokes. Dr. Schwell, could you also um, speak to this question that some people have, or, or really the, the interpretation of something that's on the CDC website about death certificates and how at one point only 5% of death certificates had only COVID-19 on the certificate. I know you fill out quite a few death certificates in the ICU. What are your thoughts on this idea? What can we really interpret from that? Yeah, so it really boils down to how the death certificate is filled out. Generally speaking, the way the death certificate should be filled out when somebody dies is you have the most proximal thing occur at the top line. And that would be, um, let's, say, let's say there was a car accident, okay? You were in a motor vehicle accident, and as a result of the motor vehicle accident, there was a uh, a rupture of one of the internal blood vessels, and then you bled out. So you wouldn't just put at the top of that death certificate motor vehicle accident. That's not what the Bureau of Statistics of your state wants to see. They want to see ruptured, you know, pulmonary artery. And then under that, they want to have the reason for the ruptured pulmonary artery. That would be motor, motor vehicle accident. So when you are describing somebody with COVID-19, COVID-19, you don't die from COVID-19. Right? COVID-19 is not a, a final cause of death. It, it, is, it, is, it may be the, the thing that set things in motion. And so you would have COVID-19 caused 
pneumonia, and then that caused uh, something like acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that was the cause of death. Because, as we've just mentioned, COVID-19 can cause death in many different ways. COVID-19 can cause you to die by a pulmonary embolism or a stroke in the brain. Unfortunately, some physicians are just putting COVID-19 at the top. So I think how what you're referring to is this statement that we see here on the CDC website. And they say here that, quote, the number of deaths that mention one or more of the conditions indicated is shown for all deaths involving COVID-19 and by age groups. For over 5% of these deaths, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned on the death certificate. So people have taken that to mean that really COVID-19 only caused 5% of the 600 plus 100,000 um, uh, people that have died in this country. And, and, there, and all the other things were just comorbidities. But if you actually look at the CDC's website, you'll see what some of these quote comorbidities are. And as we've just discussed, the actual way that COVID-19 kills people. So, for instance, the, the number one comorbidity was pneumonia. Influenza and pneumonia are grouped together. Well, the pneumonia was caused by COVID-19. It wasn't a comorbidity. Uh, another one that's very common is respiratory failure. Yeah, it's not like people are coming with respiratory failure and they also happen to have COVID-19. No, COVID-19 causes respiratory failure. And another one of these ones that was on there was adult respiratory distress syndrome. That's actually what they mean to say there's acute respiratory distress syndrome. Again, another thing that's caused by COVID-19. And so what's happening here is that, you know, these physicians are very busy. They're being handed death certificates. They need to fill these things out. They, they think, oh, yeah, that guy, he died of COVID-19. That's right. And they just write COVID-19 at the top. That's the incorrect way of filling those out. And that's the reason why. Fortunately, only 5% of those death certificates are being incorrectly filled out with just COVID-19. Just to clarify, um, using that data to uh, make a case that really COVID-19 is only killing people with multiple comorbidities is, is not, not accurate. Not at all. Well, Dr. Patrick, this next question is for you, and it's about spike protein. And we know that the spike protein can be dangerous and cause a significant immune response. And there's this idea floating around that because spike protein is dangerous from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, therefore the COVID-19 vaccines must be as dangerous as well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that, Kyle. I, I've thought long and hard about it, but sort of before I get into some, some of the details, I think Spike protein has really become a, a, a common household name at this point. Most people around the world know what the spike protein is, mostly because it's, it's the entry point for the SARS-CoV-2 virus to get into our cells. There are about 26 different spike proteins. I shouldn't say different. There are about 26 spike proteins that line the surface of a SARS-CoV-2 viral particle. And these spike proteins will bind to a receptor on many different cell types we have in, in our body um, that have a receptor called ACE2. And when the spike protein then binds to the ACE2 receptor, it undergoes a conformational change that essentially refers to the structure of it, of it changes. So it binds onto this receptor and it then elongates and sort of twists and turns around and then it fuses with the cell membrane and is engulfed inside of the cell. Um, another way it happens is through endocytosis. 
But essentially, the, the point I want to make here is that conformational change that happens because when the spike protein initially binds to the ACE2 receptor, it's in, some, it's in a conformation called pre-fusion conformation. You can think of it more like a closed type of conformation. Once it binds, this triggers a conformational change for it to, again, like I said, elongate and sort of twist around. When it does that, that is referred to as the post-fusion conformation. And the reason that's really important is because all of the vaccines that are available in the United States under either emergency use authorization or under FDA authorization or up-and-coming vaccines, so that includes the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson adenoviral vaccine, as well as the Novavax vaccine, they all contain um, a insertion of two proline amino acids into the spike protein to lock it into the pre-fusion conformation. And this was brilliant work done by the structural biologist, Dr. Jason McClellan. He's at the University of Texas in Austin. And he thankfully had figured out this way to lock viral proteins into the pre-fusion conformation. First it was with the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and then later he had figured out for the other coronavirus, beta coronavirus, the MERS coronavirus. And so he really had a running start there. And um, the reason that is so important is because when you're comparing the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, as I mentioned, there's 26 of them on every viral particle, to the spike protein that is in the vaccines, including the mRNA vaccines and the vaccines in the United States, it's a different spike protein. It's a spike protein that cannot undergo that structural change. It does not elongate and, and you know, dig into the cell membrane and fuse with it. It's a, it's a different spike protein because of those two proline amino acids that were inserted to lock it into the prefusion confirmation. And one of the first things you learn as a scientist, as a budding young scientist, is that you can't compare apples to oranges. You can't compare two different things. You have to compare apples to apples or oranges to oranges. And so when you're talking about a different spike protein, a different and structural, structurally it's different, right? You can't take a study that's looking at the spike protein that is from the surface of SARS-CoV-2 and say everything that that spike protein is doing applies to the spike protein in the, in the vaccines that are available in the United States because it's different. And so I, I think that's a really, really upfront important thing to understand. And the burden of proof is on, you know, people making the claim that the spike protein from the mRNA vaccines is dangerous because some studies have shown that the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 by itself can be dangerous. You have to show that, and it has not been shown. Um, so what these studies that have shown that the spike protein from the, the from SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, how it can be dangerous, there's been some in vitro studies, which means cells in culture in the dish. When you dump spike protein on them, it can cause the activation of, uh, of cell signaling pathways that can lead to cell death. It's often referred to as cytotoxicity. It's also, there's also been some animal studies shown where 
either recombinant protein, which is just basically made in a lab, so they make the spike protein, or what's called pseudovirus, um, expressing the spike protein. So this is not the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but it sort of acts like a virus to allow it to get into cells. Um, if you directly inject the pseudovirus with a spike protein into the trachea of hamsters, it causes severe lung damage and also gets into the circulation and causes circulatory damage and vascular damage to, to, the, to the vascular system. And so the, these studies, and there's been you know, a few of those, have really spurred this idea that the spike protein from the vaccines must be dangerous because these studies showing the spike protein that's found on the surface of SARS-CoV-2 is. And again, you can't compare. You can't make that comparison. And that's really just one aspect of, of um, you know, this, this story. The other aspect has to do with where the, where the spike protein goes in the body. And, you know, I think first and foremost, anyone that's concerned about these studies showing that the spike protein by itself is dangerous should be terrified about getting SARS-CoV-2. Because, for one, you're getting, as I mentioned, 26 of those spike proteins on one viral particle. I mean, how many viral particles are replicating inside of your cells? at any, any given moment. I mean, thousands, you know, thousands of them. And on top of that, there have been studies that have shown that SARS-CoV-2 virus is detected in multiple organs. You know, this isn't just in the nose and in the trachea and in the lungs, which in and of itself is bad. I mean, the, the, the damage to your lungs is, is you know, one, one major concern. But the SARS-CoV-2 virus, again, with spike protein, has been detected in the heart. In humans, it's been detected in the brain, it's been detected in cerebrospinal fluid, it's been detected in kidneys, it's been detected in the GI tract, it's been detected in the testes, it's in many different tissues in humans. So, oh, and it's been detected in plasma, in the circulatory system. So again, you know, the concern should be amplified for actually contracting the SARS-CoV-2 virus if you are concerned about the study showing spike protein itself is, is dangerous. Um, and that sort of leads me into the, the vaccines. And generally speaking, I'm going to talk a little bit more about mRNA vaccines because there's been some more concern about that and there's been some more data on that. But people are concerned that these mRNA vaccines are, are getting into multiple organs and therefore the spike proteins getting into these other organs and causing damage. Again, different spike protein, so that needs to be considered. But a lot of this data stems from a, a lot of this concern stems from a, a, a some data that was generated by Pfizer and BioNTech when they were doing a bunch of safety studies looking at, in, you know, what happens when you inject really high concentrations of the mRNA vaccine, uh, of the mRNA vaccine um, by Pfizer into rodents. And so um, I think the first thing to keep in mind, and I know that at MedCram, you guys have had people on, like Dr. Shane Crotty, who's explained how the mRNA vaccines work, how you have, you know, the mRNA um, inside of a lipid nanoparticle, along with some other factors like polyethylene glycol, and that is injected into the deltoid muscle tissue, and that basically, after that injection into the tissue happens, you have the lipid nanoparticle with the mRNA vaccine now getting inside of muscle cells 
using your own cell machinery, the ribosome, to actually make the spike protein, which itself has been shown to peak after 24 hours, and then after 48 hours, the spike protein half-life of the protein that's made is degraded. It's not very long-lasting. The mRNA itself also has a half-life somewhere between, you know, 48 to 72 hours. And the lipid nanoparticle has a, a very short, like within hours, it really only lasts long enough to protect the mRNA from being degraded. But once you actually do make the spike protein, the spike protein itself is, it is expressed on the cell surface and um, what's called the plasma membrane of the cell. And the spike protein itself has a region on it called a transmembrane domain that sticks it, it it's like an anchor, anchors into that plasma membrane. So it is not freely floating out into your circulation, it is stuck there. And at that point, you have other immune cells that recognize this foreign protein and, and, and begin the uh, process of, you know, making antibodies, and you have that whole, you know, immunity effect. But um, the concern was from this with, from this Pfizer study where rats were given a dose that is 10 times the amount of what humans are given. So humans are given 30 micrograms of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for one dose. The rat was given 50 micrograms of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So if you were to do the calculation uh, for a rat-equivalent dose, so if you want to give the rat what humans actually get, equivalent dose based on their body mass, it would be more like 4.86 micrograms. So they got 50, that's essentially 10 times, okay? And um, this was done for a reason of, okay, what happens when we give them a huge amount of the vaccine? Well, what was found, um, the, the lipid nanoparticle that contains the mRNA was radio-labeled. It's like a tag that you can visualize things. And that radio-labeled tag was found in other organs. It was, you know, found in a, a variety of organs. Again, it was to a very small degree but it was found in other organs. And so people got really concerned uh, that these mRNA vaccines were traveling to other organs and causing damage. And a few things to keep in mind there. One, the dose was super high. And in fact, within the same document, the same Pfizer study, they gave a more equivalent dose to mice in this case. They gave mice two micrograms of the mRNA vaccine and that vaccine did not go to all these other organs. In fact, the only organ that was shown to have any amount of, of the mRNA, of, of this radio label tag was the liver, and it was completely gone after 48 hours. And so um, I think that's really good news because it suggests, yeah, when you give you know, a rat 10 times the amount of what the humans are getting, you might have some spillover. But on top of that, again, the radio label tag that we're looking at is, is the lipid nanoparticle. And if there is some spillover, you know, in the muscle tissue, what surrounds the muscle tissue is your lymphatic system, lymph, where all the immune cells are. So you essentially have your immune cells, like dendritic cells, recognizing something foreign, in this case, a lipid, a radio-labeled lipid nanoparticle with some mRNA in it. And they, they, they basically chop it up, and, you know, it undergoes phagocytosis, and it's and is taken to other um, tissues for recycling. And so whatever we're seeing in those other organs, we don't even actually know if that's, you know, the intact mRNA vaccine lipid nanoparticles, probably just remnants of it, because that's what your body does. So I think all of those factors in combination give some reassurance that people should not be 
so concerned about M spike protein from mRNA vaccines or from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine getting to other organs and causing, you know, re wreaking havoc, essentially. Um, and I will just add one more thing to that, and that is another study, and this is something that I've seen concern about uh, on the Internet. This, this study was done in humans. It was a very, very small sample size. It was 13 people, and they were given the Moderna vac mRNA vaccines. And um, what, was, what was found in that study is that 11 out of 13 people, there, the S1 subunit of the spike protein was detected in their, their plasma. Three out of the 13 had the entire spike protein detectable. However, the assay that was used to detect this sub S1 subunit and the spike protein itself in these 13 people has a false positivity rate of 25%. That's one in four people showing they have spike protein. So that so, so the way this study, this was another study done, and it was um, they took samples pre-pandemic. There should be no people with spike protein pre-pandemic. And they were showing that they had spike protein. So with a sample size of 13 and a false positivity rate of 25%, you can't make any conclusion from that small study showing, you know, that 11 out of 13 people had S1 subunit of spike protein showing up in the plasma. I just, it just doesn't make any sense to, to make any strong conclusions from that. So I guess, uh, you know, the bottom line is that, uh, you know, as Roger mentioned, we've had over 177 million people fully vaccinated in the United States. You know, if this thing was causing severe damage in people, we would know about it. And, you know, we do know about the, the, the adverse effects that are occurring, like the myocarditis that is happening, you know, in some young people. It's still quite rare, but um, it's also, it does occur. And again, as Roger mentioned, it's happening sixfold higher in, in younger, healthy individuals than it is in people, in, in these same, same individuals that are uh, being, being exposed to the, to the COVID-19 vaccines. Well, that is a perfect segue to a discussion about adverse events and deaths reported from the COVID-19 vaccine. And Dr. Schwell, could you explain what VAERS or the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System that we use in the United States is and how that data should be interpreted? Yeah, thanks, Kyle. So to, to back up a little bit, let's talk about uh, a six-month period of time here. So if we look at December January and February of, of just a few months ago. That was a period of time, at least where I'm working in Southern California, where there was a lot of COVID. In fact, we had to build an entire new ICU uh, with isolation precautions. We had to have nurses trained. We, we basically used a lot of resources because surgeries weren't happening at the time. Um, and compare that with the next three months after that, which would be March, April, and May. So the reason why those two groups of three months are very different is the first group of three months had a lot of COVID-19 patients coming in. We were very full. And then after that wave went away, um, we basically disbanded the second intensive care unit. We were able to contract back to what we were doing before. And this, despite the fact that in March, April, and May of 2021, we were vaccinating millions of people a day. And so again, I just want to underline what Dr. Patrick was saying there. If this spike protein from the vaccine was so dangerous, how were we able to contract down our hospital ICU intensive care services during that period of time? However, what did happen during that time was that there was a huge spike. Of, um, so, so the argument may be made, for instance, that maybe the spike protein is not causing disease or conditions that would get people into the intensive care unit, 
but it might be causing more mild symptoms or more mild problems. And, and that might show up in something called the VAERS system. So let's talk about the VAERS. So as you can see here on the, on the screen, there's this chart that has uh, made the rounds on the Internet. And what it does is it shows the total reported deaths post-vaccine. And you can see, obviously, not post-COVID vaccine because the COVID vaccine didn't exist back during these years. And we're going back way back. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge spike here. And these, again, are reported deaths. So this is evidence, uh, some say, that these patients that are receiving the COVID-19 vaccine are dying. So again, I don't know how they could be dying without going through the intensive care unit. I guess it's possible they could be dying at home and never making it to the hospital. So let's investigate exactly what it is that's going on here. The thing that you've got to understand about this reporting system, a couple of things. Number one, you have to understand that because the vaccines that were given emergency use authorization in 2020, late 2020, because of this, they expanded the reporting requirements for the VAERS. In other words, before, a physician would make a report to the VAERS if he suspected that a, a vaccination led to a death and they were, they were under suspicion that something was connected. Now that was completely eliminated. Now, no matter what happens, if a patient gets a vaccine and anything happens, hospitalization, death, anything, it should be reported under law. So I wanted to take a look at this a, a little bit more. And, and what I did was I looked at this paper that was published back in 2016. And it was looking at the flu vaccine. Because a lot of people say that this has never happened before. This, this huge increase in reporting from the vaccine has never happened. But yet there is a uh, situation that occurred, and it was published here in December of 2016, titled Surveillance of Adverse Events After Seasonal Influenza Vaccination in Pregnant Women and Their Infants in the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, July 2010 to May 2016. So as you may recall, in 2009, we had a flu epidemic called the swine flu epidemic. And in that year, there was a huge amount of H1N1 influenza. And you can see that here on the screen with that red bar. So you can see the blue is sort of the endemic influenza. And then in 2009, this massive increase in H1N1 reports. And so what you also see here is that purple line is the amount of vaccinations that happened. So because there was a lot of influenza that was going around, a lot of people were being vaccinated. So what you're actually seeing here, these bar graphs, is the number of reports of adverse events. Okay, so that's key to understand that. Even though the vaccine had not changed, the makeup of the vaccine had not changed, what we saw was because there was more vaccinations being given, there were more reports being given. But there's something actually more to it than that even still. And that is that there was more understanding and more awareness of influenza. So what I've done here is I've superimposed Google Trends, so how often somebody would get on the Internet and search for influenza. You can see clearly there, at the same point in time that we're seeing increased reported spikes, we're seeing an increased interest in influenza in general. In fact, the highest that there ever was during that time because it was a very important news item at that time. Now, again, this was under strict reporting system, so they only could report whether they felt that there was a connection. But even that, after they looked at it, and published this paper, this is the conclusion that they came to. Despite the increase in reporting events, they said that the peak in the number of pregnancy reports observed during 2009 to 2010, followed by a decrease in reporting, suggests that the 2009 spike 
in pregnancy reports after 2009 H1N1 inactivated vaccines may have been due to stimulated reporting. In other words, the vaccine hadn't changed, the side effects hadn't changed, and so their conclusion was is that as in 2000 and 2009, 2010, no new or unexpected patterns in maternal or fetal outcomes were observed during 2010 and 2016. So if we take the same kind of methodology that we've done, we looked at this huge spike here with COVID-19, and this is supposed to be evidence that people are dying from the COVID vaccine. We see a very interesting pattern, because if we look at Google Trends and we type in COVID vaccine, uh, obviously there's a massive spike at the same time, the same kind of recipe that we would see with the influenza. And then also, just to, to make sure that we understand here, this is the deputy director for the Centers for Disease Control. This is what he says. He says, quote, healthcare providers reporting requirements are much broader than for other vaccines. After someone receives the COVID-19 vaccine, their healthcare provider is required by law to report all serious adverse health events. That would include death, even if the provider does not think the vaccine caused that event. These events can include death, inpatient hospitalization, or a serious case of COVID-19. That reporting protocol is due to the fact that the FDA authorized the COVID-19 vaccines for emergency use. So you can see that the rules have changed in the middle of the game. And so we have to look at that. So again, if we were to, if we were to give a placebo injection, the question is, is, we would still see deaths associated with the vaccine. Why? Because we're vaccinating so many people and because of just chance. So I, I did a little bit of a epidemiological exercise, so bear with me. If you look at the U.S. death rate per 100,000 population per year, it's around 870 deaths. So in, that, in other words, if you were to take at random 100,000 people in the United States and follow them for a year, you would find at the end of that year that about 870 people would have died. Um, obviously, as the age goes up, that can go up to as high as 4,000. Uh, here in the 75 to 84-year-old age group, that's much higher. So let's just take the average. We'll be conservative. And also, if you were to look over the period of the last seven months, going from January of this year to August, seven or eight months, you'll see that there's a fairly linear increase in the amount of vaccinations over that seven-month period of time. And in fact, over that seven-month period of time, there's been about 166 million people that have been vaccinated. So if that's over a seven-month period of time, the average period of time that someone's been vaccinated is about three and a half months. And over that period of time, which started in January, that's when we have the highest death rates. Uh, but then as we go through the year, it comes down to the lowest death rate. So that's over, over that period of time. There's an average death rate in the United States. So let's do a little bit of calculating. If there is 870 dead people per 100,000 people per year, and we adjust that for the 166 million people that we've vaccinated in one campaign, and then we adjust that for instead of 12 months, just three and a half months, which is the average period of time that people have been on average vaccinated, we come to this number of about 421,000 people that should be dead just by chance from getting the vaccine. And clearly that's not the number of people that we're seeing. Um, the reports show maybe uh, 10 or 15,000. So clearly there is a huge amount of underreporting occurring. Now, realize that, again, most of the people who are being vaccinated, at least in the country, are actually much older. So this number should actually be higher. 
And number two, that most of the people that were vaccinated very early on and therefore have a longer range of vaccination were the older group as well. And so when you look at that, you can see here that the reported deaths totaling about five or 6,000 is a huge underreporting of the number of deaths that we should have if we just put a little red dot on their shoulder or gave them a placebo injection. And that's, that's very important to understand because some people, some disingenuous people will show this and say, look, the vaccine is causing these deaths and that cannot be gotten from that type of data. The other graph that you might see is this graph, which shows the number of days after vaccination that deaths are reported. So based on our 400,000 number that we've come up with, if we were to prorate that on a daily basis, we would come up with about 4,000 people dying on a daily basis on average. Um, obviously, that gets bigger as, as more and more people get vaccinated. But what we're seeing here after a vaccination is only six to 700 deaths per day. Again, huge underreporting here at this point. So because there's huge underreporting occurring, one might think that what would be the most likely reporting situation? Someone who got a vaccine and died the next day or someone who died maybe a month later. Obviously, when you have a death occurring close to an event that has to be reported, the reporting is going to happen more likely in that situation. And you're going to have underreporting occurring much more likely a month later. And that's exactly what is demonstrated here with this graph. We see that the most reporting occurs within one or two days, and then it goes down precipitously, consistent with that type of pattern. The other last thing I'll leave you with here is that with the mRNA vaccines, with Moderna, for instance, it's a four-week interval between shots, and for Pfizer, it's a three-week interval. If, in fact, that second shot is causing the problems that we see with myocarditis, myocardial infarction that's been proposed or been uh, suggested, I would expect to see another peak here about three to four weeks out. But in fact, we don't see any such peak. And so that, again, lends me to believe that this graph is the result of reporting events and human psychology rather than a, an actual spike protein that's causing uh, deaths in these patients. I agree that we should look for this stuff. This stuff needs to be taken seriously. Uh, and that is exactly the purpose of the VAERS um, system, is to look to see if there are patterns. But to go out and say that the simply because there are deaths, that that must mean that the vaccine is causing deaths, I think that is disingenuous and not supported by the data. Dr. Patrick, anything to add to that? Yes, I do. I do agree 100% um, with that last statement that Dr. Schwelch just said, because people are taking this data that is, you know, accessible to the public from the VAERS system, and they're trying to make sense of that data. But scientists from the CDC and from the FDA analyze that data. They have to look at the, they have to, to you know, stratify it by age, by gender, by ethnicity, and see how many people die of X, Y, or Z in that age, age range of that gender, of that ethnic group, um, without a vaccine, just what's the normal background death rate. And you need to sort of, you need to do that comparison. Otherwise, this is like the worst epidemiology data you could ever imagine without any correction for confounding factors. You know, it, it would be like one year there was like, you know, there was 200,000 births in, in, the, in the city of San Bernardino. And at the same time, we had, you know, 10,000 storks that flew by. Therefore, storks have to be causing or delivering the babies. I mean, you know, or causing the birth, basically. So 
you know, epidemiology is a big mess, and so you can't just take that data and make these correlations. And I think to sort of add to what Dr. Schwelch's kind of brilliant epidemiology experiment that he just explained, and to add to that, in the United States alone, every 30 seconds someone dies of cardiovascular disease. Every 30 seconds. Now, generally speaking, most of those people are going to be 50 or older because cardiovascular disease doesn't usually affect people in their in their 20s or 30s. It can, but generally speaking, it's it's usually it's an it's an age-related disease, um, more or less. And so, you know, if you look at the VARES reported VARES deaths, it, more than half of them are in a population of people that are 50 and older. So it's like, well, what are the chances that some of those people are probably just dying from a heart attack or from cardiovascular disease, um, stroke. Every 40 seconds, someone has a stroke in the United States. They die from it every about four, four minutes or so. So, you know, there's like, like Roger, Dr. Schwelt said, there are a lot of people dying <laughs> every day in the United States, completely independent of COVID-19, completely independent of vaccines. Um, so it's really not... Uh, it's not accurate to try to interpret the VAERS data yourself without stratifying it and looking at all the other factors that I just mentioned. But even on top of that, last time I did a VAERS report, actually, uh, was probably close to a month ago, maybe three weeks ago. And at that time, I was, strati I was stratifying the data by, by age and looking at the reported deaths. Over 584,000 people of the age of 50 and over have died from COVID-19. And last time I looked at the VAERS, which is about a month ago or so, about 5,000 people over the age of 50 had reported, you know, V-A-E-R-S deaths. And so even if you were to take that 5,000 and triple it, you're still 40 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than you are from a vaccine if you are over the age of 50. People age 40 to 49, about 20,000 people have died from COVID-19, according to the CDC website. If you look at the, the VAERS, it's um, much lower than that, about 200 people. And if, again, triple that number, even after tripling it, you're 33 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than from a vaccine if you are age 40 to 49. And then bring that, down, bring that age group down even further, 18 to 39-year-olds. About 10,000 people have died from COVID-19 in that age range. And if you look at the VAERS data, it's somewhere around 200, let's triple it, 600 people. You are still 17 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than from a COVID-19 vaccine if you are in the age range of 18 to 39. So again, at every age group, you're much, much more likely to die from COVID-19 than you are from a vaccine. And that's not even... We're just, taught, we're just directly taking the VAERS reporting, and as I said, you can't do that. We don't even know if those deaths are actually causally linked, right? It's correlation. So I think, I think when you look at it like that, it makes a lot more sense that everyone's going to be exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus at some point. Do you want to be vaccinated when you're exposed to it? I do, personally. Okay, let me summarize my understanding of this, and correct me if any of this sounds wrong. In our country of over 300 million people, there is a background number an expected number of deaths and other medical problems that are going to happen on a daily basis or an annual basis on average. And then we have this reporting system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, where medical professionals are not only encouraged, but they're actually required to report 
any medical problem or death that happens after someone gets a COVID-19 vaccine, whether or not they think the vaccine caused it or not. So it's an epidemiologist and other scientist's job to look at the number of reports that come into the VAERS and compare that with the background numbers for each age group and other demographics and assess, does the number of reports actually rise above what we would expect for that age group and other demographics? And listening to you, Dr. Schwell, it sounds like for deaths reported from the COVID-19 vaccine, the number of deaths actually falls far below the background level that we would expect, which suggests that there's under-reporting, but it also suggests it's very unlikely that a significant number of deaths are happening from the COVID-19 vaccine. Do I have that? Oh, 